This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 101. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 101 you're listening to, and it's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio Focal Monitors and Audio Technica. Welcome back. Well, we've done it. We're past number 100. Um, and I'm sitting here. It's the in my house. I'm actually in the living room, which you can hear is a little more cavernous, cavernous than my studio. And just sitting in front of the fireplace, it's late at night. And uh, wife and kids have already gone off for Thanksgiving, and I'm going to fly out tomorrow to meet them. So I figured I'd get number 101 done before Thanksgiving week here in the U.S. And uh, yeah, it's been a momentous several days. You know, we did our 100th episode over at 25th Street Recording with Stephen Hart and Cookie Marenko. We streamed it live with a four-camera feed, and uh, it was a great success. And I just, I'm still stunned that we've done 100. And as I, you know, tell you that this is the 101st episode, it's feels good. Feels like, all right, well, let's do the next 100. So here we are. So I'm in the living room because I had um, my guest today, Lef Lefferts, who I'll tell you more about in a second. Uh, I had Lef come over to the house today, and we set up in the living room with the Zoom recorder to uh, record our interview. So I figured I'm already set up in here. I might as well just record in here. So I've got my little handheld AT mic, my uh, my, B- my BP4001. The dog was so annoyed with me talking to myself that... Uh, he decided that he was going to go in the other room and snore. So this is good. He's not going to be in here. But he snored through the entirety of, of the interview today. So hopefully we'll be able to get that out. And yeah, maybe you'll hear it. Maybe you won't. So my guest today is Lef Lefferts. I know. Interesting name. His full name is Leffert Lefferts. Le- so, but we obviously we call him Lef. Anyways, I've known Lef for many years now. Uh, we had a period of time where we worked together at Cutting Edge Audio Group in San Francisco, which is a pro audio dealer. Lef comes from uh, uh, Boston. He was a graduate of the Berkeley School there. And he came out to came out to the West Coast and found himself over at uh, the plant studios in Sausalito and went through a whole uh, life lifetime there and then found himself over at uh, Cutting Edge Audio Group where we met. And uh, we've been friends ever since. He's such a good guy. Uh, he eventually left and went over to work at Skywalker Sound and eventually found himself as the assistant for Randy Tom. Randy Tom's been around a long time in the film industry and the world of sound. He got his start on Apocalypse Now, and he has uh, been uh, a constant fixture in the Northern California world of film sound ever since. And Lef has a great job working for Randy as his assistant. And every time I talk to Lef, he is always working on a new film. Uh, most often the films that uh, my kids want to see, you know, like cartoons, Ice Age or Pixar films. But he also works on some pretty pretty monstrous blockbusters like The Revenant, uh, you know, movies like that. So, yeah, really happy to have Lef on today and he's going to he's going to join us here. So, uh, yeah. So let's see what else what else do I have to tell you? I don't have much to tell you. I I, I just got to say, you know, I'm I'm still kind of recovering physically and mentally from putting together uh, a great show with a with a fantastic team over at 25th Street Studios, John Schimpf and 
everybody there, uh, Gabe and Jamie and Scott and Peter, uh, really fantastic crew over there. So if you ever have the luxury of working at 25th Street Studios, I think you're going to be really happy about it. So if you haven't seen the 100th episode, you could see it if you want to see the video version of it. It's up on our Facebook page. Uh, but of course, you probably already know that we've already released it as a podcast. Uh, so if you just want to listen to it, you can do that too. But uh, yeah, worked out really well. So, so we had a good time putting together the 100th show. I, I often talk about how we've got some you know, good things in store. And, you know, good things take time to, to work on. So we're working on some stuff that hopefully by March or April of 2017 we'll have ready for you. And I'll try to, you know, hurry it up and do a good job at the same time. I know that's not always possible. But that's about it. So uh, once again, thank you to everybody who listens, uh, to everybody who supports the show. Here's a raising a coffee cup to you to say cheers to the next hundred shows, and we'll just we'll see where it takes us. All right, let's get into it with our guest today, Lef Lefferts, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So I always say welcome to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You're the hundred and first interview. So thanks for coming out to the house and. Uh, Let's go back to the point of what was the pivotal moment that got you an awareness of audio and where you started to seriously think about recording? You know, um, when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was, was to be a guitar player. At this point, I, uh, I tried to get an internship in a recording studio in Bethesda, Maryland, um, because I wanted to learn how to record my own music. And uh, that ended up not happening. I ended up going and spending a, a couple of months up at, at, at Berkeley College of Music in, I guess this was 1987. And I, uh, but that, that idea of wanting to, I had a four track, you know, as we all did, you know, was trying to record guitar riffs and make songs and stuff like that. And when I got to Philadelphia, when I was in college, I found a recording studio, again, with the same idea of just trying to figure out how to make my own stuff mm -hmm. was the whole goal. I came to two really important conclusions that summer of, I think that was summer of 1990, 89 or 90. To be the guitar player that I wanted to be, I needed to play my guitar 12 hours a day and practice. And I realized that I didn't want to do that. You know, that was, that was going to sort of, that would hurt what I enjoyed about playing music. That was a commitment you weren't ready to dig it, into. It was a commitment that I just realized wasn't good for me. But then I started working in this recording studio. It was called Chestnut Sound uh, in Philadelphia, right near Rittenhouse Square. And uh, I started working there, and I realized I was like, oh, I could do this 12 hours a day and never get tired of it. You know, it was just sitting behind a console. I just realized that, you know, shit, this is really great. And that really is where I... Uh, what changed me, mm -hmm. you know, that was what drove me every single day. It was like, how do I, how do I work in this environment? You know, I, I left Philadelphia and I came out here and uh, Pro Tools, actually, what was it? Sound Tools. Yeah. What came out and, um, and then Pro Tools came out and I built my first Pro Tools rig and I started recording local bands and, you know, just, you know, carrying it around and doing all this stuff. And, and I realized that, uh, what it, the the focus wasn't exactly right because what I really wanted to do was I wanted to be in studios and I didn't know how to do that. I didn't even at that point know that there was you know interns and T boys and all that kind of stuff. I 
and I went back to Boston and I went back to music school and, and I got a degree in production and engineering and spent two years really sort of honing my craft a little bit. And then I came back and started working at the plant, which was a, you know, a, in Sausalito. Uh, yes. The, the, the former uh, record plant, then the plant in Sausalito. And uh, I had a, a really, really nice run there of, you know, working with a lot of incredible acts and, you know, from Metallica to the Dave Matthews band and, I had a blast. I want to talk about some one of the things that you did, which in the Bay Area early on when Pro Tools was really starting to take a, a foothold, you would lease a, a Pro Tools rig. Oh, yeah. And uh, rent it out to sessions at the plant like Metallica. Yeah, that was a really interesting time because kind of like the music, but you know, the music business was really uh, stubborn in embracing digital streaming and and file sharing and things like that at the same time at this a lot of the recording studios were really stubborn in um embracing pro tools you know the guys at cutting edge were amazing because uh brian and jeff and sig and tom all you know looked at what digital design was doing and said wow this is the future and cutting edge just for those that don't know in the bay Area, cutting edge audio group is you know a pro audio dealer that's been around for uh, 25 30 years now that we both have worked for yeah that's right yeah, which is that that's one, <laughs> one of the things we have come in common <clears throat> so anyway so yeah the guys at cutting edge really saw what digidesign was doing and being a computer and being a mac nerd from the you know from the moment the apple II came out when when digidesign came out with pro tools i was i was in uh, you know i i built that rig before going back to boston you know i God, i think that first i built that first rig in 93 I know this is a departure from the rig itself, but tell me about the structure of the money, how that worked with those rigs. Cause that always fascinated me that, you know, uh, guys like you, it was more than just you. There was somebody else too, wasn't there that was doing this where you would lease the rig. Oh, right. Like well, how so, did those leases uh, work? Everybody was doing that. So uh, long story short, Arnie, Arnie Frager, who Arnie was Frager, the, who the was the owner of the, owner, owner of the plant, was really reluctant to invest all of this money. I mean, even still at that point, at, at, well, at any point, running a major recording studio was incredibly expensive and, and very difficult to do. And it was almost always a, a money loser. Mm -hmm. So what we would do is, you know, you'd go out and you invest the, mo the money yourself and turn around and every time a band came in and said, well, we want to use Pro Tools. You know, I was the assistant engineer on the project and I had a Pro Tools rig. So it was great for me, you know, if I remember correctly, I think it was a, I had an eight channel, eight channel Pro Tools 24 mix system at the time at the plant was, uh, and then it, then it moved up to HD, but it was, uh, it was $300 a day. And then, you know, most of these equipment rental companies would do a four day week. So, you know, you're looking at $1,200 a week. What was that? An incredible way to supplement, you know, once you got the rig paid off. It was an incredible way to supplement your income because, you know, working as an assistant, you don't make a ton of money. You're not in a union. You don't, you don't get overtime. And wasn't the, the lease structured so that you, you pay for a fixed amount of time and then there was like a dollar buyout at the end of the lease or something? Is that oh, how oh, oh, you mean leasing to own the system? Right. Uh, I actually, in, in my situation, I didn't lease to own. Oh. I actually bought, bought my rigs outright. Okay. Um, which was uh just uh, i burned savings 
you know, I had money that I'd saved up from working in the studios before and, you know, that. And uh, I was actually lucky enough to not have to do that because the, the lease and then the buyout was a really good way to get into it easily. Mm-hmm. But you ended up paying, you know, at least 50% premium. Oh, yeah. On, on, you know, what you ended up paying out in the end. So, you know, I was actually lucky that I had a little bit of money in the bank to get my first rig. And then you lease it and pay it off. I, I, think, I think the very first rig, I, I, I took out a loan. Um, which was cheaper than the lease to buy. I don't think the lease to buy when I got my first rig in 93 existed. I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be a first interstate bank. Um, it was a it was a bank. Uh, it was a California-based bank. They had a branch in the Upper Hayden when I first moved here in 92. It was the closest bank to my flat. So that's where I set up a checking account. Yeah. There was a woman there who was a bank manager, and she was totally cool. And, you know, again, little stupid things. She liked my name. You know, I have a weird name, Leffert Lefferts. And we kind of became friends and we would talk all the time. And she gave me a loan, a bank loan with a really low interest rate to buy my first rig. This is all Did about... you have to give any collateral or? God, that was 20, 30 years ago. I don't remember. Okay. I must have. Or, um, or but at the same time, possibly, you know, it was, it was, I think it was more about the relationship. I didn't really have much collateral. Yeah. But she gave me a low interest loan and, and I paid it off. Yeah. Interesting. It was pretty cool. I don't know what the lending practices were back then. I can't, I don't, I don't have a, well, a knowledge in that, but. Neither do I. And, you know, also First Interstate Bank got gobbled up, I think, by Wells Fargo and, and all those kind of stuff. It was a very small, you know, at the time, mm-hmm. you know, it was a, a small banking institution. It was, I think, basically more on relationships than, than corporate rules. Well, so you got, you got a Pro Tools rig and you paid it off. Did you get another one? I never owned more than one. Okay. But that was that was really the thing is is uh renting it out was how I saved up the money obviously to to live on but you know put a little bit of money aside to you know the the evil of the Pro Tools upgrades. <laughs> As it was. Yeah. Um it was funny I had a new bus my new bus system lasted me all the way through my time in Boston. And then when I was leaving Boston and coming that was the first rig I built when I lived in lived here first in 93 and uh, I sold the whole thing off in 97 because I didn't want to move with it. You know, I knew it was outdated. It was kind of on its last legs. And then that was when I came back and, and bought the second, I sold that all off and I came back and built the second system, which was, I think that was the mix plus system. Okay. With Brian and Jeff and, and those guys. And, you know, basically the money I sold it for was the sort of the down payment on that. The, the new bus system was interesting. Do you remember uh, Lexicon New Verb? I do. Wasn't it? Was it a card or was it an add-on card? It was an, an add-on new bus card that was either could be standalone or could work within Pro Tools. Right. Once they started doing TDM. And and just here's an extra bit of geekery for everybody. People are probably going, "What is new bus?" Well, as you and I know, new bus is what differentiated it's one of the many things that different differentiated pcs from macs back then that's right whereas you know uh, pcs were using pci slots mm-hmm. macs were using new bus slots and so there was zero compatibility there and eventually Macs went on to pci slots yeah that was one of the one of the battles that steve jobs lost you know uh pci definitely and, and i think PC, pci was always better um but uh, but Lexicon, it's a it's a, a little piece of audio history that Lexicon had built this thing called the New Verb, which was a new bus card that had quarter inch 
stereo quarter inch ins and outs, um, but it also could have a, a, a daughter card attached to it to connect TDM to, to Pro Tools systems. So it could be used as a plugin, but it was a dedicated reverb. And at the time it was the best sounding digital reverb you could use in a workstation. Uh, what was amazing about that was that the sound of it was unique enough that even though Nubus was gone and everything had switched to PCI, like I had a PCI to Nubus expansion chassis, um, I was able to sell that expansion chassis and the two Nubus cards I had for what I needed to to build the the next Mix 24 system. It was some crazy studio guy up in Seattle, uh, you know, through the internet, you know, early days of the internet, I met this guy and, and he wanted them desperately because wow. he loved the sound of them for whatever reason. Hmm. I mean, it did sound great, but you know, I, th I think the funny thing is it was kind of like a poor man's two, uh, 224 or 480. Yeah. You know, it was, but, a, it was, it was a lexicon reverb box built inside a Mac. Yeah, exactly. Is what it boiled down to. And that's what he built. I mean, that he used it as an outboard reverb. So how did how did you find your way into the plant? So I came back from Boston, you know, nothing to do with with uh, careers or anything. When I moved to Boston, I was I had fallen in love with my wife, and uh, she moved with me on the premise that we come back to San Francisco. When you come back to San Francisco and you want to work in the music industry, there was basically two places that you aspired to, and that. One was fantasy and one was the plant. Um, so I, you know, I got back here and it was like, well, you know, that's one of the most famous recording studios in, in the history of music. I need to figure out how to get there. And I called and I asked if they had job openings and they said, no, um, but we do have internships. And, you know, I went and interviewed and got myself an internship and started. You know, it was just that that was kind of the dream was, you know, when I before going to Boston, I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know how the system worked. I didn't know how you got into recording studios, but I knew you needed to have, I thought you needed to have a basic knowledge of large format consoles and analog workflows and signal chains, signal paths and all this kind of stuff. So it's, I thought I needed to go back to school. In retrospect, I probably didn't, you know, because really how everybody learned this in the beginning was by do, just simply by doing. Mm -hmm. you, you don't need to go to school for it. Um, that said, I loved my time at Berkeley. Um, I have some incredible, uh, musical relationships from there that, you know, are still, um, still very strong. And so, uh, so yeah, the, so that was, that was an amazing time. The, the plant, I, I kind of feel like I was there for the, the last great heyday of the plant. You know, it was. It was the Metallica years. There was, you know, Dave Matthews was there for a couple of records, Blues Traveler. How long did it take you to move up from intern to, to assistant? Uh, a couple of months. That's not bad. No, it really wasn't. The funny thing is, is that um, I got there and I, I, I learned this a couple of years later, but um, after being there for a month, they were trying to decide between giving me the assistant gig on uh, before these crowded streets the first Dave Matthews record that was done there and this other guy and they gave it to the other guy because uh, he'd been there longer and he assisted on that record and decided that the whole gig was not for him and he left and it went back to doing just private recording studio stuff. You know, he had, he, he'd already had his own studio built and he didn't want to work in a commercial studio. So I, I, my intern stint could have been even shorter. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to say, 
I'd have to look back at it, at calendars and dates and stuff, but it was probably about four months. Hmm. This is a side note. I was fortunate enough to uh, go and be able to hang out with basically a bunch of, uh, like a little group of ex-plant guys. Uh, it was, it was Michael Romanowski. It was, it was you. It was Chris Manning. It was Kent Mackey. It was uh, Warren Latimer. You're, you're listing some of my favorite people on this yeah, whole planet. Yeah, Warren, who's now at Pixar. Uh, and Chris, I think. Chris is with, with me at the ranch. Which uh, I'll have to talk to Chris about that because I noticed his name, I think, in a in Star Wars in, in a credit somewhere. Yep. And uh, uh, Kent's working for Metallica still. Kent is still working for Metallica. Hello, Kent. <laughs> and uh, Buddy! And um, I said Warren's at Pixar already. Um, and Romanowski's doing his thing at Coast Mastering. And, uh, Which I'm kind of hoping he's working today because since I'm in the East Bay, I want to stop and see the place of fantasy. I still haven't seen the rooms yet. Oh, it's it's very nice. Yeah, so I had to, a good job. I had to miss that big open house he did. Well, so the time at the plant, how was that for you? You know, it's it's still one of my, uh, it, it's really one of my favorite parts of my life. You know, I kind of, I kind of talk about my various careers as my different lifetimes. So, you know, that was one of my lifetimes was my time at the plant. Mm -hmm. It was, it was hard. I've never, never worked that many hours in my life. You know, that was the kind of thing when you're, when you're putting in a time card and it's at 120 hours for a week, doesn't quite add up. Yeah. Um, I remember one time, uh, I think it was on the garage record. Um, I left the studio to go home only to go home and walk my dog and come back and take a shower and come back because my wife was out of town. The garage record from Metallica. Yeah. Garage Inc. Garage Inc. Okay. That was, uh, and that was one of those things I, I, remember sitting at that Neve in studio B going, I should just, I shouldn't go home. But my wife and had taken our two kids at the time and had, uh, was visiting family in Montreal and my dog needed to go out. He needed to have breakfast. So it was like literally driving over the bridge to come home, take Ezra for a walk, give him breakfast, yeah. take a quick shower, go right back to work. And for those who aren't, from the Bay Area, and uh, so the plant was in Sausalito, which is across San Francisco. Uh, you got to go over the Golden Gate Bridge, and which is a beautiful commute. A beautiful commute, but you know you got to you got to commute to go take care of your dog. Yeah, Kent was smart. When Kent started working at the plant, he rented an apartment literally up the hill. He was, I mean, a three minute drive. Wow! Because you realize, I mean, you you live in the studio there was uh there was a short period of time where um i was teaching when expression opened the the guy that built and invested in expression also invested money in the plant and um when the school was ready to open their studios weren't finished so we actually taught the you know recording 101 labs in studio b at the plant for the first class you know those back then there were i think it was a 14 month program there were three of us that there were three labs and three of us that taught them. And me being the youngest one of the group, I got relegated to the 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. class. And uh, there was actually a, a period of time where just given the schedule, I didn't leave the building for two and a half days. Yeah, I taught the Tuesday 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. lab and uh, then had a session with Gerald Levert uh, on the Wednesday. 
and then had another session the Thursday and then taught the Thursday 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. lab and then went home. 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. What's up with that? You know, the uh, Gary Platt was one of the founders of uh, Expression and he wanted uh, he wanted the kids while they were in school to understand that there were times that you were going to, you know, pull all nighters. <laughs> and so he scheduled a lab from 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. And it was funny because as he was introducing us to the kids on day one. I said, Gary, you got to understand if these kids don't know how to make coffee, I'm calling you at two in the morning. <laughs> yeah. That could be a class in itself. How to make coffee. <laughs> oh yeah. Enrique Gonzalez. You remember Enrique? I remember Enrique. Enrique is actually a, a, a professor at Berkeley now. Enrique made the best studio coffee. Ah. And it's one of the things that catapult him, catapulted him into being a great engineer and producer because he recognized early on, he was just like, these people need to be in their comfort zone. He's a professor at Berkeley, Berkeley in Boston. In Boston. Oh, yeah. wow. Uh, Sean McLaughlin and um, Daniel Cantor have been on the show who yeah. both teach at Berkeley. So. Oh, yeah. And as well as uh, Pablo Munguia. Oh, yeah. Oh, Pablo was at Berkeley when I was, when Enrique and I were there. I'm good friends with Pablo. Really? Oh, yeah. He Pablo's amazing. Yeah, Pablo is in Spain running the operation there. Yeah. Um, I forget the name of the program at the moment. But, uh, yeah, Stephen Weber, who was um, the assistant director of the department at the time that we were there, basically founded that program in Spain. Well, Pablo's there. He's been on the show. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to have to listen to that one. Yeah. I, lo I love Pablo. He's the best. <laughs> okay, so... Let's fast forward a bit. We can't spend all our time in the plant. But I, one last parting thought is that a huge amount of people that we know that we mentioned, all those people, Chris Manning, Kent Mackey, John Cunaberti, Michael Romanowski, oh, yeah. uh, Warren Latimer, a uh, lot of plant people, a lot of, lot of very talented people all in that building at one time. And then, of course, the building uh, went away, the business went away, and the, one of the, uh, the, the Neve that was there is now at Tiny Telephone Studio C in, in Oakland. Yep. Well, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with my buddy, Lef Lefferts. We're having a good time chatting here in my living room. And uh, as you know, we uh, got to take a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio-Technica here. And this is my chance to uh, say congratulations to Arthur Hendricks and Pat Patton, who are listeners of the show. They won a pair of ATH M40Xs, you know, those are my favorite headphones from Audio-Technica that I use. And uh, we gave those away live on the air for the 100th show. It's about the, towards the very, very end of the show where there's about six minutes left. So if if you want to go back and relive their glory, you can do that. But uh, yeah, the ATH M40Xs, and I'm just going to give you my quick pitch on these. And here's why I like them. There's a lot of great headphones out there, and of course, Audio-Technica makes a whole bunch of great headphones, but the reason I like these is the bottom end is not massively e exaggerated, and the mid-range seems accurate to me. You know, it's not totally flat, but it is just a, a, a fun headphone to listen to, but it's not uh, hyped up in a bunch of different areas to me, and I feel like I can, you know, check a mix on those headphones and have things translate. In fact, I'm wearing them right now as I'm recording this. So definitely one of my favorite pair of headphones. And the thing about Audio-Technica headphones is they have the detachable cable. Uh, they come with a, a, a coily cord that's short and a, a longer straight cord and it, just a really well-built headphone. Uh, 
I don't abuse my my stuff, but I definitely have dropped these headphones on more than one occasion, tossed them into a backpack, and uh, they've taken a little bit of a beating, but they hold they hold up quite well. So, Audio Technica ATH M40Xs. Make sure you uh, check that out at audio-technica.com. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get back into it with my buddy here, Left Lefferts, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Me being the analog nerd that I am, I I own two plate reverbs. I own an old Echo Plate 3, which came out of, you know, typical of studios always being somewhat financially in trouble. When I left Chestnut Sound uh, in Philadelphia in 92 and moved out to California, the studio owner owed, still owed me a little bit of money. And, uh, you know, as, as happens in this business, you kind of go, well, never going to see that. Joe Alfonsi, uh, who I'm still very close with, uh, was a studio owner and studio manager of Chestnut. And talk about mentors. He was he was my first mentor and taught me a huge amount about the business and how you treat people and how you work and how you listen and and very much so about how you put the artist first. You know, ultimately, you want to make sure you have your mics and your gear in the right place because you have to be ready to capture whatever magic happens from the artist at any given time. Mm-hmm. And that was the really, he was the first one to really teach me that. It's like, you don't go, oh, wait, wait a second, I need to move the mic. No, they're playing, you're getting it. He called me and he said, Lef, I'm closing Chestnut. Um, I still owe you money. What do you want from the studio? And I said, I want the plate and I want the two 545 filters, Yuri, 5, Yuri 545 filters you have. It's done. And, uh, and so as he was closing the studio, he packed that up and he shipped it across the country. And that's how I got my first plate. That plate traveled all around with me for many years. And then uh, when I was working at Cutting Edge, I was helping Jeffrey Norman. Jeffrey Norman is an engineer for the Grateful Dead. On a project, they were uh, digitizing a whole bunch of old live recordings and doing a big box set. So I was helping him get all the Pro Tools stuff straight and figuring out how to do all the transfers and stuff. And we developed a really good relationship. And uh, maybe like three or four months after... After I'd helped him with that project, he called me and he said, uh, he goes, Left, you're an analog guy. I said, yeah. And he goes, um, the dead are getting rid of one of their EMT 140s. They're going to throw it away. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> exactly. I said, what do you mean they're going to throw it away? And he goes, well, yeah, you know, uh, Tom Fly, who's been one of their engineers forever, the, you know, they had two and Tom picked his favorite and the other one's going in the dumpster. I said, you can't do that. He goes, it's going in the dumpster unless you come and get it. And so uh, I rented a U-Haul van and I called Mark Paul. He was a big strapping lad to help me lift that thing. And we went and grabbed it. And it was literally a month after I moved the other plate into Coast. And uh, I called Michael and uh, Paul. I said, uh, Paul Stubblebine, who sort of founded the new generation of Coast that it was. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, I got another plate maybe. Can we, is there room for it? And they're like, yeah. So we went up to uh, Belmer and Keys and grabbed that EMT-140, which that thing has a ton of history. It was at Hyder um, for years before the dead, the dead took it out of Wally Hyder. Uh, and before that, it was at RCA Studios in L.A. Um, and it sounds great. And then and Wally uh, Hyder eventually became Hyde Street. Became Hyde Street. Right. right. So Hyde, or I should say Hyde Street used to be called Wally Hyder Recording, right? That's right. Um, but uh, when Coast was... When the building was sold, as we were talking about before we started recording, you know, Michael called me and said, uh, I'm moving. I'm calling. To, and he goes, Nobody knows this yet, but 
I'm moving and you need to know because your plates need a new home. And uh, that was the the neat thing that, you know, I called John Vanderslice and said, he, he'd heard that I was looking for a new home for the plates and he wanted them. And, and he was so enthusiastic and excited about it. He goes, Lef, I, I'm going to give them a great home and they're going to live with the Neve. And, you know, that, I, I think that's kind of, kind of fitting that my plates are, you know, connected to the Neve that I spent so many hours yeah, so years and <laughs> lifetimes at the plant working on. So, what happened after you left the plant? You know, the plant leaving the plant was kind of a hard thing for me because uh, the music business changed so much in that short period of time because of Napster and because of uh, what I believe is the the record label's short sightedness. Instead of trying to figure out how to embrace this new format of of digital and streaming uh, music. Uh, they tried to cut costs in the wrong ways. They started cutting recording budgets. They started not letting bands go where they wanted to go, um, trying to keep everything in Los Angeles. So it became harder to make money. And the plant was getting booked less and less. And, it, you know, it was it started to get dark. And uh, Warren called me and he said, uh, uh, Warren at the time was working for Lucasfilm, for ILM. He had left the plant and gotten a gig at ILM. Uh, before he went to Pixar. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, I just want you to know that Cutting Edge is looking for a new Digi guy. I think he goes, I can't do it, but you know, maybe you should. And I, I said, oh, cool, thanks. Not thinking, you know, I don't want to go work for a vendor. You know, I, wanna, I don't want to work for a pro audio dealer. Yeah, I, I want to keep making records. And uh, But I called Brian and I said, you know, a little bird told me. And Brian was funny. He He said, no, not hiring you. And I was immediately insulted. I was like, <laughs> wait, why? Yeah. And he goes, he goes, because you're going to come work for us for like three months and then Metallica is going to call and you're going to leave. <laughs> and I went, uh, maybe. <laughs> but then I started to think about it. And, um, and it was actually Mark Paul that said, uh, <clears throat> that, that gave me really good sage advice at the time because I called him. And I was like, you know, I don't, I don't want to give up what I'm doing to, you know, go do this gig and, and potentially not have other, you know, other work making records. And Mark was like, um, do you have any gigs lined up? And I went, uh, no. He goes, so you're not giving anything up, dude. <laughs> go take the job. Yeah. Go bring in some money and pay your bills. And feed my kids. Yeah. How many and kids did you have at this point? Two. And now I have three. Yeah. Another one sort of magically appeared. <laughs> uh, I don't know how that happened. But it was it was an incredible thing for me because it sort of made me at the time sort of I, I was so intensely focused on producing records that I that I kind of lost focus on the big picture. And the big picture was where do I want to live? Where where is my wife and my children going to be happy? Mm -hmm. Which is what's going to make me happy. Um, I was talking to some friends of mine down in Los Angeles. I was talking about moving down to Los Angeles. I was talking about relocating my family, doing all of this stuff. I was, I was talking to people in Nashville. I was doing all this stuff, and I realized, I was like, wait a minute, where do I want to be? And ultimately, the answer was right here in the Bay Area. I really didn't want to leave the magic that I think is here. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, well, what can I do if the music industry is going to abandon me? It's going to make me move to stay in it what can i do and i started to look around and i was like wow you know there's there's a lot of film work up here there's a lot of ga video game work there's a lot of ways for me to apply my talents in other things so i started to so i took the job at cutting edge which was an incredible opportunity uh, not only to work with guys that i was already friends with 
and do what I knew how to do. But it's just, it was, I mean, you know, you were there. It's a great environment. Those guys are a blast. But they also are the primary vendor for all of the <clears> video game companies, all the post-production studios that, that, are, that are up here. So I realized, I was like, wow, this is a great opportunity for me to meet all of these people and to try to figure out how to creatively move forward. So I spent a lot of time in electronic arts, a lot of time at Pixar, a lot of time at Skywalker. And, you know, really looking at it, I realized that the, the mentality that I think you need to do game audio was not my thing. It, it just seemed to be, for the way I, I like to work, it just, I, I, I didn't quite see a fit. I almost took a job at EA. I got offered one. But uh, it, film really attracted me. I love movies. And the more I started to talk to people that were doing post-production sound and realizing that it's very similar to making records, but even on a sort of a, a larger scale, it's like the idea that you come together in this collaborative environment and you take somebody's, in this case, the director's vision, and then the next step down, the sound designer, sound supervisor's vision, and you create this entire landscape. And just like in making records, I realized you're telling a story, but you're telling a story on an, on an even bigger scale than you are in a three minute song. And it's not to take anything away from making records and recording music because I still love that immensely. But the idea that you can, you know, be part of, you know, making something, making a piece of art that requires hundreds of people to do, to pull off is pretty amazing. Yeah. And it really can become just as a record can and maybe not as much now but to me movies really can become ingrained in the cultural uh i don't know what you'd say that maybe the, the cultural fabric of, of western entertainment i guess you could say well yeah I, I i i think that there's you know if i look back on it and i and i always come back to it i think one of the when i was trying to be a performer and a songwriter when i was really young the one thing that I always came back to is I always said, if I could write something as simple and as powerful as for what it's worth, Stephen Stills, Buffalo Springfield, um, that's, that's, that to me is kind of like the, the bellwether because it's, what, it's four chords, it's a harmonic, a couple of harmonies, it's, and it's talking about the upheaval that was there in the 60s. You know, mm -hmm. it's just such a powerful moment and a beautiful song. To me, that's very similar to something like Ben Burt going out and, you know, hitting a hammer on a, on a wire that's holding up a pole to create the laser sound for, for Star Wars. You know, some, those two things to me are, are equally ingrained to me. Like the sound of the lightsaber, Darth Vader breathing are as cultural to me as, you know, Bob Dylan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like film is, just, it, it's, it, it's our culture. It's our lives. So in your job at cutting edge, did you start to gravitate towards the interactions that you had with the folks at Skywalker? Oh, absolutely. I could probably thank Avid and Digital Design a little bit for this. Uh, when the D control came out, that was when I started spending quite a bit of time up at the ranch because they were interested in it. And I was one of the few people in the, me and Lev Perry. Um, who's were, now at Universal Audio. Who's now at Universal Audio, uh, who has been instrumental in the d design and progression of the Apollo series. His work there is amazing. But Lev and I started spending a lot of time up at the ranch and meeting various mixers and sound designers up there, showing them the D-Control and how it worked. And, and that was really kind of what solidified 
I don't know how to say it, but if you've ever been there, then you realize you once you've been there once, you want to be there. It's a beautiful environment. There, the the people are incredible, and it's it's you know you, you immediately feel like family when you're there working. Mm-hmm. And then they asked me to come up and work with re-recording mixer named Andy Nelson, who's based in Los Angeles, to because they wanted to mix in uh, episode three, Star Wars episode three, in the box. They wanted to mix the whole thing virtually. And Andy's a very traditional mixer, and so I came up to you know, see about showing him the ropes on a, on a pro control. That was what they were thinking of mixing on. And after meeting with him and talking with him and understanding his workflow, I went back to cutting edge and I said to Jeff and I called Dave Anderson, who used to be the regional sales rep for DigiDesign. I said, this is a horrible mistake. They shouldn't mix these things. This movie on pro controls, can we get them three demo D controls and let's, let's build one of their stages out with controls properly and let's train them and let's let's make a big push for this luckily digidesign thought it was a good idea and uh, lev and i went up and they took the euphonic system five out of mix d and we built 3d controls for the three mixers and uh made it happen and uh it actually got me uh, a film credit in episode three which was pretty crazy that was kind of the, the really the start of my relationship with the ranch and the one of the digi guys as we call them there's there's three guys there that basically support all of the Pro Tool systems. Kind of what I did for Cutting Edge, Skywalker had their own team. When we say that, we're not saying that they work for DigiDesign. We're saying that they work for the ranch. Right. But their main job position is to support the Pro Tools rigs. Yeah, troubleshoot them, <clears throat> make sure they're all working up to date, replace anything that breaks, et cetera. One of the Digi guys, uh, this guy Tim Burby, decided that he was going to take a shot at working in the editorial uh, working on the freelance side of things and he called me i said you know he goes Left, how you doing i said i'm fine tim how are you he goes well i just quit my job whoa because yeah i just quit my job and i think you should take it i said wow i started thinking about it and i was started to talk to the technical manager at the time this guy roland feld and i basically went to him and i said you know i, I really appreciate being considered for this but you know if i'm going to change jobs I don't want to do the same thing I've been doing. I want to, you know, go back into being a creative. I'd like to work in editorial or, you know, be a mixed tech or something along those lines. And I said, I don't think this is the right job for me. And uh, Roland, I, I remember I was I was driving down Geary Boulevard and I, he was on the speakerphone and, and he said, he said, Lef, this is exactly the right job for you. You're out of your mind. Um, you know, I understand that you want to do something different than this, but it's incredibly difficult to get a job here. But once you're in the building, it's a lot easier to, to move laterally and to change your focus. So why don't you come meet with me? And, and the irony is, is I was supposed to spend the whole next week up at the ranch doing training for decontrol for mixers. So I would drive up to the ranch a little early and I would go sit in Roland's office and I would talk to him about the gig and all this kind of stuff. And, and then I would do my job and then I would say goodbye to him and, and go home. And by about the third day, I said, okay. I'll, I'll put my hat in. I'd, I'd like the job. So uh, I ended up getting the job. And it's funny, about three months into it, this uh, one of the sound supervisors up there, this guy, Dennis Leonard, who does a lot of work with uh, Randy Tom, director of sound design, came to me and he said, well, what would you think about being Randy's assistant? <laughs> oh, this is the lateral move that... I said, this is exactly what I would like. But you know, I've only been here for like two months. And if I left the Digi gig now, Roland's going to kill me. And he goes, well... Just keep it on the back burner. And about eight months in, Randy's assistant moved on, and uh, and I didn't get the job. I went to somebody else. 
I started having conversations with Randy and um, he, uh, he said, well, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how things progress. And the assistant that he hired did a great job, but uh, almost immediately got an offer to work as a, as an editor on a big Pixar film and, you know, it was sort of a can't say no kind of gig. So he moved on very quickly and Randy came back to me and said, how about now? I went, yes. And it was uh, like a year and 10 months after I'd started working for Roland. So just, I want you to give some perspective to this because for those that don't know who Randy Tom is. Oh, right. You got, you got to give some. So uh, Randy, uh, Randy is the director of sound design at Skywalker Ranch. He has been there for close to 40 years. I think he's, you know, three years behind Ben Burt as um, employees of George, maybe two. Um, George Lucas. Right. The guy that made Star Wars. Right. That guy. <laughs> uh, ben Burt, the guy that is the sound designer for Star Wars and and all of the Raiders, uh, Indiana Jones films. And, you know, actually Ben and uh, Walter Murch, who is also a picture editor, director, sound designer. Ben and Walter are pretty much the the reason that the term sound designer exists in film credits now. Mm -hmm. um, they kind of created the field. Randy and many others were sort of the next generation to come up under them. Randy's worked on so many incredible films. The first film he worked for, worked on was under Walter Murch uh, on Apocalypse Now. He has two Oscars, one for The Right Stuff and one for The Incredibles. Um, when we talk about mentors, he is the biggest mentor in my life. And this is interesting too, because how old are you now? 46. Yeah. Okay. I just turned 46. You just turned 46. Okay. Here you are at this stage of your life working with a mentor. And oh, I think absolutely. a lot, of, I think a lot of people associate mentors with the beginning of one's career. Here we are at the, certainly not the back end of your career, but at this stage God, of your not. career to, at, you know, you know, you're headed towards 50 and, and you have a mentor. I never thought about it like that, but you know, the thing that's amazing about working at Skywalker and being in the film business and, and, and I think this is true of any industry for me, I'm still learning and I learn new stuff every day, whether it's something technical because, you know, this particular picture department is working in a different way than, you know, we normally work or they're using a different piece of software whatever it may be, and it could be something insignificant or it could be something huge, you're constantly learning. And something that I, I always enjoyed traveling around, I always listen. I love listening to what's going on. I mean, I, I love Motos snoring. <laughs> uh, no, I, absolutely, because there, in any given moment, whether you're listening to the, the white noise on an airplane, that is oddly calming. Mm -hmm. um, or you're listening to a dog snoring, or you're listening to raindrops on a roof, on sitting on a porch outside. Doesn't matter what it is. Or you're listening to, you know, the new single from Metallica. It, it really, it, it starts with the obvious things that you're, you know, someone draws your attention to. Hey, listen to this song, or dude, check this out. No matter what it is, your ears are such an integral part of your life, and. I'll digress a little bit to tell you that what, what I think is so fascinating about film sound and which is such an incredible challenge is that you watch a Marvel movie, Dr. Strange, great example. The visual effects in that movie are completely stunning. Your eyes are tricked into 
believing that you're seeing buildings folding and changing. Your eyes are really easy to trick. Your ears aren't. You pitch somebody's voice down. You try to take, you know, you try to put a little girl on screen and have her talk. And if it isn't right, your ears are going to tell you, you know, how to train your dragon. The sound design for the dragon vocals that Randy and Al Nelson did for Toothless is unbelievable. They created a character. Were they able to just create it out of thin air like you do with animation? Were they able to just draw it? Were they able to synthesize something? Were they able to like, you know, find a plugin that says dragon vocal? No, they spent months taking various recordings of animals and various recordings of their own voices and playing back and forth and created a character that you totally believe. And that's not easy. No, it takes an incredible amount of work to make it believable on screen. And true, truly, your ears are much, much more critical judges than your eyes. Mm -hmm. You can look at something and go, okay, well, I'm looking at it. It's got to be what I'm supposed to be looking at. But if it doesn't sound right, your ears go, well, no, that's not right. So you've been there with Randy now for how long? I've been working for Randy since January of 2008. So uh, almost nine years. Can you name some of the films you've worked on? Memorable? Yeah, probably the, the one that, well, the, the most current one is a, a Robert Zemeckis film called Allied with uh, Brad Pitt and Marianne Cotillard, uh, which is a World War II uh spy thriller which is fantastic that actually comes out next week uh the first movie i worked on with randy was for blue sky studios which is owned by fox which was horton here's a who an animated mm -hmm. film with jim carrey which i absolutely love i've worked on every blue sky film since then uh, absolutely adore working on those movies this time last year i was in los angeles working on the revenant for alejandro and Yuritu, uh, which is was an incredible challenge uh, and an incredibly rewarding experience. Every time I call you, it's like the conversation is like, what are you working on? What are you doing? What are you working on? Oh, we're working on, you know, something that I know that I'm going to end up going to see with my kids or in the case of uh, House of Cards, something that I want to see. So I'm always like, don't say anything. <laughs> I'm going to watch the next season. I, I don't want any clues, hints or otherwise. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's involved in your job with Randy on a day-to-day -day basis? The interesting thing about my job and why I am, uh, I consider myself to be very blessed is that in film sound, traditionally, the roles are very defined. You're an assistant or you're an editor, you're a sound designer, you're a mixer, you're, you have a role, you have a very specific role. And that's very much, that that's changing, but that's, that's very much been the way it's been for a hundred years, not a hundred years, but a long time. A long time. <laughs> because of what George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola built up here, built in the film industry up here is, you know, they really wanted to get away from the rigidness of Los Angeles when they came up here in the seventies. And part of that has allowed for more of a inclusive, do what needs to be done to get the job done role which is very similar to what it's like working making records if you're an engineer or a producer or an assistant working with a band and making a record there's no oh i do this you don't you do this i don't that didn't sound right but you know what i mean like uh the division of labor is very the, clear in film as opposed to records as, as opposed to records exactly thank you you know you basically whatever needs to get done to get 
that guitar track recorded, you do. Whether it's, you know, running out and, and moving the mic to, you know, tweaking the mic pre, whatever it happens to be, everybody's trying to get the same job done. And that's very much how things are done at Skywalker. I mean, people obviously have roles. You know, you're editing dialogue, you're the first assistant, you're the effects editor. But because I like to do all of those things, Randy has really given me a wide berth to have a role in each film to do whatever it takes to get the best soundtrack presented for the director. So because you're saying that otherwise, and in, in the way it used to be is, is in when film was primarily films were primarily made and post-production happened in Los Angeles. The, the division of labor was clearly defined. Whereas up here, up, up here, you, you're allowed to, to wear different hats. There's some flexibility. There's definitely flexibility. So for example, you know, in most cases, if I was the sound design assistant, which is basically what I am, I would never mix anything. You know, that would be my role. If I was the first assistant editor or if I was the Foley editor or the effects editor, I would just do that one job. Okay. But working with Randy, I have the breath to be able to do everything from, you know, m helping maintain and, and update our sound effects library to mixing the film. And that's really good for me because I think um, one of uh, probably my strength is mixing. Mm -hmm. But there's something about meeting, sitting down and meeting with a director before the film has even started or as it's starting and talking with them and looking at a rough cut of it and talking about the vision and the and the 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 story that the director wants to tell and there's something about that moment of being involved that early on that's magical there's also a magic to sitting at the desk and making the final mix adjustments with that same director you know and 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 putting the finishing touches on it at at the very end that's also magical so for me uh as as working with Randy, I get to be involved from the very beginning. And Randy has long espoused the need for even writers to be thinking about sound as they're writing scripts. You know, you can consider, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're writing a scene, the perspective that you're describing is really important. So if it's just, you know, a camera that's looking at two people talking, you know, that doesn't really leave room for sound to tell the story. But if, the scene is written from the main character's perspective and he's looking across at the person he's talking to and he's in his head or her head, then there's all kinds of sound opportunities of, of ways to see how that, to tell that story, you know, because Randy has been championing this idea. It, a lot of directors are starting to sort of take that to heart. So all of a sudden they call him as their storyboarding an animated film or as they're getting ready for production to go shoot something. Mm -hmm. um, there was an incredible moment that uh, I loved when uh, we were working on Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. Uh, Guillermo asked Randy to come out to the set, and they were just sitting on the set, and they were talking, and Randy was watching them filming, and um, you know, Randy had a, a, a sound idea for storytelling. He said, you know, you know Guillermo, if Mia, Mia uh, was the, the actress who played this character, Edith, said, you know, maybe there's a, there's a moment where we could have her actually put her ear to the wall because she's, she's having this moment where she thinks she's hearing ghosts, but she's not sure what's going on, and the house is literally talking to her. If we have a shot where she actually puts her ear to the wall, it, it could be a really cool sound design moment. And Guillermo was like, wow. And they went and grabbed the director of photography, and they 
they figured out and created a scene for her to do this. And there's this, it's this great moment in the film where like literally just the house, you have this, this quiet moment where the house just sort of comes to life because she takes the moment and puts her head, puts her ear to the wall. <laughs> Something silly, right? But right. if you're not thinking about what the character is hearing right. when you're shooting, you, you just wouldn't do it. It's, it's a new level of communication and filmmaking that hasn't taken place before, really. Because yeah, well, sound it, it has. It absolutely has, has in, in, in certain projects, but it's not something that's common. It's not a traditional way of doing it. Exactly. Okay. You're working a lot. Yeah. Like, every time I talk to you, you are working. Like, how do you balance your life with, you know, your wife and kids? Uh, not always successfully. Yeah. Are you the main breadwinner? or, or I am. Or, okay. I am. But, you know... Uh, and you know this from being a freelancer, uh, whether it's music or film or video games or, or accounting. If you're a freelancer, you're not, you don't say the word no. And that is a challenge and that forces a lot of compromise in your, in your personal life. My wife, God bless her, pretty much all she's ever known from me. So she deals with it. There are definitely moments when she doesn't like it and I have to make it up to her. And that goes the same for my kids. I do everything i can to be there for them when they need me there are moments when i have to say i'm sorry because you know just uh just last saturday last friday afternoon i got a call that um i had to be in los angeles for saturday and my daughter was rowing in a race for sonoma state i had full plans to take my sons and we were going to go watch her and her boyfriends on the team as well and we were going to go and i had to send this text out at two o'clock on friday afternoon going you know we have a sort of a family group chat that really sorry everybody but i have to go to los angeles tomorrow morning and to which she replied what about my race and it tore my heart in half you know and she's she's 19 she's almost 20 she's an adult and she's been living with me having both a music career and a film career her whole life it still affects them so i would say that that is it's less than ideal but at the same time my kids have grown up seeing me work my ass off and know that you work for a living but they've also seen that i love what i do and i think if anything that i can impart to them if you got to figure out how to spend your 12 hours a day do something that you love because if you hate what you do and if you just do it to make money it ain't worth it yeah no shit and that's the other thing about our society now there is no more nine to five you know what i used to you know back in the music days which you know it was crazy but it was sort of abnormal what i'm kind of finding now is you know i work on on a relatively regular basis, 45 to 50 hours a week, you know, nine, 10 hour days, five days a week. Sure. There's going to be the occasional overtime. There's going to be the final mix that goes crazy and we're working Saturdays and Sundays, but in general, it's okay. It's 40, 50 hours a week. It's still long. It's, it's still not nine to five, but I don't think there are many jobs out there that really are nine to five anymore. Yeah. Cause you know, employers are demanding more, you know, time from their employees and, you know, they come home and they still have to answer emails and, so in our business, in all the different areas, and, you know, there's some flexibility. I, I've recently um, taken on a um, contract job with Universal Audio. Oh, nice. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm doing QA testing for some plugins. Oh, that's great. And I do it from home. And, you know, I try to squeeze in six to eight hours a day uh, doing it amongst all the other activities of not only the podcast, but also my kids and mixing and recording and 
mastering and my wife and yeah and you know the beauty of it is is i can do a chunk in the morning go get the kids do a chunk in the evening do another little mini chunk at night get my eight hours in get the testing done it's an interesting thing so yeah it's our our jobs and all these different audio related things seems like all the other industries are kind of starting to do it all they're all they can do it why won't (laughs) right So yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Well, but I think that's the biggest, the biggest takeaway ultimately just to say it one more time is that I do work a lot, but I am incredibly blessed. You know, I go and I go, I drive to a beautiful, beautiful location. I work with some of the most amazing people on the planet and I make sounds for films. I tell stories with sound and I love what I do. And that's, that's the biggest thing I hope my kids take away from it is that find something you love. You know, uh, and I'm just kind of, yesterday um, was Friday and we did the 100th episode of the of the podcast with Stephen Hart and Cookie Marenko at 25th Street Studios, 25th Street Recording. Um, and it was a live stream, a four camera shoot, you know, and it was a fair amount involved. And there was a party afterwards. And um, the team at 25th Street, as I watched them, there was a point at which the whole team was in the control room and John Schimpf kind of at the helm was, had you know, printed out my cue sheet of how I thought the the event should go. And they all were just kind of running things down and just watching them all work as a team, all, all of them super talented in their own right. But just, I love seeing groups of people in a creative environment come together with such intense focus and everybody kind of keeping egos in check, follows the leader and goes, okay, this is what we all got to do to get this done, to yep. make it, make it come off. And in the film world, I'm sure that you experience that on a daily basis. It's all about team. And, it really is. And you may not be the head person in charge and making all the decisions, but your role as a part of that team is so critical. And there's, I don't know, there's, there's a lot to be said for that type of environment, you know? Yeah. I mean, there really is. I mean, I, I, I think I said it once already, but, one of the reasons why I feel so blessed is that it's it's family. You know, it really is. I mean, you 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 take a bullet for each and every one of those people that I work with, and and they would for you. We have we have a great it's a great environment to work in, but it's it's you. I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You know, and 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 you know, it's not just that particular place. I mean, I think that you know the the nature of making film soundtracks. You know the you know, that's, that's what it should be about. It should never be, um, about one person needing this or one person needing that. I mean, everybody obviously has needs, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a team moving forward. It's just like those guys sitting in the control room. You know, when you're making a record, you know, it's, there's four guys in the band. They didn't just make the record. There's a producer, there's an engineer, there's an assistant, Maybe there's two assistants, whatever it happens to be. There's an A&R guy. There's all these people that came together in a recording studio for six months. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we used to do it back in the day. And you live, eat, and breathe those 12 songs. Yeah. It's the same thing in film. You know, you come together, you all sit down, and you watch the first cut of the film. And you meet with the director, and you get their vision, and then you work with the sound designer and the supervising sound editor and you, you define the track and you spend six months doing that or three months doing it, whatever the the project calls for. And then when you finally get to that moment at the end, 
when the director goes, that's my movie. Mm -hmm. You've contributed to something. You've contributed to a piece of art that is fascinating. And it will last. It will and it last will forever. endure. It will endure. And, uh, you know, I love, I know we both love making records, but let's face it. There's a ton of records that all of us, not just you and I, but everybody who's listening and everybody in, in the music recording world, there's a lot of records we all work on that never see the light of day or they die a slow, painful death. Uh, same with film. Same with film or television. You know, there's, I'm sure there's a ton of movies that came out in the 70s and the 80s that no one ever remembers that someone bled over. You know, yeah, someone, you, someone okay, cut yeah, their teeth on. You know on. what? You're right. You're Absolutely. Right. And interestingly enough, I'd add that there's a ton of movies in a switch from, you know, Betamax VHS to DVD. There were a ton of films that never got transferred to digital. There are a ton of movies that existed that we'll, you'll never see again. The, the video from, you know, remember that uh, Place in the Inner Sunset? Uh, oh, yeah, Liv yeah, 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 yeah. Classic, had all the great foreign films, all this kind of stuff. Their entire, Alamo Drafthouse picked up their entire collection when they went out of business because there's stuff that they have that's on VHS that never made it to DVD, never made it to streaming nothing it's it's a, there there is there is lost art out there just like there's records dude there's records that you and i both worked on that are fantastic that no one has ever heard or or, or very few 300 people heard it and no one even knows yeah, it ever you're right happened. you're right i'm 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 i making some kind of ideal fantasy world about the film world but as you said i realize yes there are a lot of films and tv shows and there's, series that just don't make it there's independent film that you know people make you know uh, uh i'll give you a record example you know the the record that i played for you eli's record eli nelson there's a little plug for you you know eli and i spent seven years making an instrumental guitar record together just for not the, straight no off not straight. and on uh, off and on in our free time in our basements in our garages it's one of my proudest one of, one, of, one of my proudest pieces of art. We made it for us. Right. We made it to, to make a beautiful record. A fair amount of people have heard it. A fair amount of people love it. But it wasn't supposed to be Star Wars. Right. You know, but it's out there. And, and in the modern streaming world, somebody could go find it now. And we're, we're, we're kind of running over a bit, but I do want to just touch on this. The, um, the technological aspects of what you do, just the backing up of data in the film world. And I only say this because I was at the music expo watching a former guest, uh, Jessica Thompson, who works with uh, Piper Payne and Michael Romanowski. Oh, yeah. um, Jessica gave a, a talk on backing up. And uh, as I'm sitting here with you, I'm realizing the assets involved in a film and the preservation of those assets must be a colossal uh, there, effort. There are things or movies that Randy worked on in the 80s that were backed up, sounds that were backed up that are unrecoverable now because things weren't kept forward, kept moving forwards in, in, in the restorability of them. Right. You, meaning they were stored on formats that are no longer... That are no longer viable. Right. And what I think is interesting is that even though film is dead, um, a lot of productions are still striking a film print for archival reasons. I, I know this has changed, but as... As recent as 10 years ago, 
um, I was working with Joe Satriani, even though he had made a record entirely in Pro Tools, we put all the tracks to do it. Was it Joe? Might not have been Joe. The Sony, I think it was Sony, still wanted two inch tape for archive. We had to print tracks to two inch. It seems archaic, but we know that tape and film both last for a hundred years. If you store them in the proper environment. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, if you take a hard drive with WAV files and put it on a shelf, not only is there no guarantee that that hard drive is going to fire up 50 years from now, even if it's in a perfectly controlled environment, but what if WAV files don't exist anymore 50 years from now, right? Sound Designer 2 files don't exist anymore. Well, they exist, but they're not. They have to be converted. They have to be converted, right. You can't, you can't copy them onto a modern file system because uh, a modern file system will strip their resource works which means makes them unplayable. Yeah. We actually had that problem where we switched uh, servers. We switched our server structure for our, our, our library and everything was copied over to the server and it went from being a Linux server to being a Windows server. And it just, it, no one thought about it, but there were sound designers that still had files from films that were, that they were accessing that were sound designer too. And you'd listen to them in SoundMiner. And you'd transfer them to Pro Tools. And when it went into Pro Tools, it would get converted to a WAV file. But no one ever thought, oh, we've got to convert everything because we need to convert everything to move forward. Well, they switched to a Windows server. They copied the library over to the Windows server, and it stripped all the resource works of all the Sound Designer 2 files. All of a sudden, they're all unplayable. You can go back to oh, that original we did. server. So what we did was we went back to the old server. We copied it all to a Mac file system. We converted all the wave files. We updated the, the database, and then we migrated it all back to the Windows servers. Oh, nothing, nothing was lost. But it's the same kind of thing. It's like, well, no, I've, I've backed it up. It's right over there. Hmm. It's on my list of things to do. I've got a, a bunch of old records backed up on AIT. I have an AIT drive. Is it going to last forever? No. Nope. I need to restore all of that stuff and put it on a RAIDs and you know figure out where it's going to get archived next. Yeah. You have to keep forward. I have... I have a friend of mine who's a music editor who every single time he upgrades to a new backup solution, he take, and it could take him a month. He goes and he restores everything from the old backup solution and backs it up to the new one because you never know when they're going to go, Oh, we're re-releasing, you know, this film and we're going to do a new mix. I'll give you a a real quick thing and then we got to wrap up, but I did this voiceover session with this this uh, pr- this producer and this and this uh, voice talent, and got it all done, sent it all out, printed all the the little you know it was, it was a very short session, printed all the all the versions of you know each line that needed to be sent to this company, you know you assume that once you send it off everything's good. Well, about a month later, literally a month later, one file got chopped at the end, a phrase was chopped, and I was like. I know I have this, but, but where, but where is it? And, you know, you got to go in and do the search and, you know, I found the original session, pulled it up, reprinted, sent no problem. But every time these little events happen, it just strikes fear into me. Like, okay, it makes me reevaluate how am I handling data and, and, you know, making sure I'm doing it in a, in a, in the correct way. As much as it's a drag because it's not the creative part of things, you know, and as far as, you know, you're not capturing the recording or, or creating the sound, the technology is a huge part of it. 
and you have to manage it and you have to be organized. Yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate thing. Like I go back to, I remember there was a stuff that was sent to us at the plant. We were supposed to, to remix something and all these reels of two inch show up, no track sheets. And I remember being completely indignant. Like, who are these people? How can you not make a track sheet? How am I supposed to know what's where? <clears throat> so it, it doesn't matter whether it's analog or digital. And I actually think it's probably even more so that, that we're digital and we have so many tracks and so much stuff to manage. You, you have to be incredibly organized. You have to take care of your stuff. And it's not only that, it's just, you know, with shrinking budgets, we, we, you know, we rush to get the records done in, in a timely manner. And then, and then we're out of time and we're moving on to the next project, but we actually have to factor time in to take care of the assets of that project, no matter how small, because you never know. And you don't want to be the person that screwed the pooch with the data if something great happens and everybody goes, oh, thanks. We always factor in as best as we can two days for one of the supervising sound editors and for the first assistant after the print mastering's done for two days of just decompression in the bid to go, okay, is everything delivered? Client's gone, everything's done, everybody's happy. Where is everything? Is it ready to be archived? Is the, is, are all the new sounds ready to go into the library? We. We build that into bids because you have to. That's great. You absolutely have to because everything is always frantic up to the end. And if you don't have that one day or hopefully two to just go, is it right? Parting thought before we go. Um, you've worked in both film and music. Are there things that to this day you think film that us in who are making records could adopt from the world of film in terms of the workflow, the technical, the technical aspects or vice versa? Yes and no. What I think is the most important thing to realize both in film and music is that the workflows that were created in the analog days were created for very specific reasons to deal with technical limitations, noise floor, all these kinds of things which don't necessarily apply in the digital world, but I believe those workflows are valid, are, are, are more valid and lead to better sounding records and films than just any old mic plugged into any old DAW, which is kind of what tends to happen. Hmm. Making decisions about how things sound. I think we were, I think in the analog days we were more thoughtful because it was more of a process. So I think we, we thought a little bit more ahead of time of where that mic's going to go or how that sound's going to translate into the, the mix um, because it was a lot more complicated. It's not to say that digital workflows aren't complicated, but to go from real one to real two in the analog world meant half an hour. It's maybe five minutes in the digital world. So you tend to jump around a lot, but then think about it. It's like, well, if we're going to go back to real two, to do this one thing, is there anything else? You know, you, you you tended to be a little bit more thoughtful because there was more of a process. Hmm. And I think that is lost in a lot of modern productions. So that is where I would actually say that it's not really film learning from music and music learning from film, although I'm sure there are things. If we had another hour, we could probably go into that. But I think more just taking the time and really thinking about what things sound like and and sort of harking back to how we made records and how we made films before. And that process is, is important to understand and carry forward. 
Well, on that note, thanks for coming over, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, there you have it. Left Lefferts here on the Working Class Audio Podcast, 101st episode. Great feeling, yeah. Well, that's it. We're out of time. So, of course, we want to say thank you to Lef. And, uh, of course, we want to say thank you to everybody involved here at WCA. Thank you to Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. And we want to thank our sponsors, of course, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And thank you all for listening. As usual, I do appreciate it. And that's it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.